If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 2022 is the History Extra podcast's 15th birthday. So to mark 15 years of fascinating historical conversations, we've asked 15 historians to nominate a figure from history who they think deserves their 15 minutes of fame. Some are inspiring people who deserve more airtime today. Others are those whose significance in history has been overlooked. And some simply led fascinating and unexpected lives. In today's episode... Dr. Caroline Dodds-Pennock nominates Melinson, the indigenous woman who acted as Hernando Cortez's translator during his conquest of the Aztec Empire. John Borkham spoke to Caroline to find out more about Melinson's life and legacy. So firstly, Caroline, which historical figure have you chosen? I've chosen Melinson, someone who is also known as Doña Marina or La Malinche. She is an indigenous woman who lived in Mexico in the 16th century and she became the translator for Hernando Cortes, who invaded Mexico in 1519 with the conquistadors, famously. So she is someone who's become kind of known in mythology and popular mythology, but I think we don't know very much about her as the woman, which is why I wanted to talk about her today. Indeed. And do we know much about her early life? We don't know very much about her early life because all of the information we have about her comes from other people and it comes from after she is given to Cortez. So the difficulty is that she is a figure who is constructed in other people's stories, if that makes sense. And most of what we know about her early life comes from one of the conquistadors, a man called Bernal Diaz del Castillo, who writes about her 50 years later. And so what we think may have been her origins is that she was a Nahua, a Nahuatl-speaking woman, possibly of noble descent, who was sold into slavery in a Maya community. That's what we think. 
Um, it's quite difficult to tell the details, but what we know is that when she was still quite young, maybe no more than about 16, she is given with a group of women to Cortez by the Maya lords that he meets. They're trying, a, it's a diplomatic exchange, basically. And there's a lot being concealed under that word given. These women are sometimes called concubines or wives, but essentially they're being presented as sex slaves or something like that to Cortez and his men. And they take these women and baptize them and then give them as wives, in heavy inverted commas, to the uh, captains of the group. And Melintzin is given to a man called Puerto Carrero. But then Cortes, as his expedition goes on, meets people who speak other languages. And he realises that Melintzin is capable of communicating with these people in both Nahuatl and Maya. And he has in his company a man who can speak Maya and Spanish. So he realises how useful Melintzin can be because it's a very laborious process, but it does enable him to communicate with people. He translates. So uh, this man in his company, Aguila, translates from Spanish to Maya, and then Malintzin translates from Maya to Nahuatl, and then back again. She quite quickly, fortunately, learns Spanish. She's clearly a very talented linguist. Uh, but at one point, they're even translating through someone else as well into Totonac. So it's the possibilities for misinterpretation are endless. But she becomes very, very central to his expedition and to his efforts in communicating with the indigenous people in that region. So how are her language skills then used in the conquest of the Aztec Empire? Well, she's absolutely vital because although Cortes does go in with quite brutal force at some times, he also bases his conquest essentially on building alliances with indigenous people in the region. Most famously, the Tlaxcalans, who become his principal allies and have tens of thousands of people in his company when he finally besieges Tenochtitlan and defeats the Aztec capital city. And so her negotiating skills are absolutely central to what happens. The difficulty is that we don't really hear very much about her as a figure. We hear, we know she must be there because he's communicating with people who speak Nahuatl or Maya. And we know that she's really close to him because in the indigenous texts in particular, so in the pictographic texts, she sometimes appears in front of him or beside him. She, in the indigenous mind, is, if anything, more important than him. They start calling him Malinche which is a version of her name, because they've become kind of one person in the mind of the indigenous people, because all the orders come from her. And the trouble is that in then in the Spanish text, you get this slight scapegoating of her for some of the things that happen. So the explanation for the massacre that takes place at a place called Cholula is that she tells Cortes they're going to attack him. Now, whether she actually did say that, or and she says she'd heard this, you know, in the story, she heard it from some of the women, whether she actually did say that or whether he just is looking for an excuse to terrify the local population, because this is clearly a terror tactic he's using. We don't know. But she becomes this intermediary in the stories. And that's part of what explains her complex legacy and the reason that she's been seen in this difficult way. We We often see her inside the stories but not it, her own agency is quite hidden she's being used by different people for different reasons in these stories but actually it seems she was a woman making the best of her situation she is a very young woman who's been put into a very difficult position and she manages to 
navigate that situation in a way that eventually results in her descendants having quite successful lives. She elevates herself from being enslaved to being uh, quite a, um, an influential figure after the conquest. Indeed, and you mentioned descendants there. Of course, she has a son with Cortes, doesn't she? Can you tell us why he is significant? Yes, she does. She has a son with Cortes, and it's quite significant that he seems to be born almost exactly nine months after the fall of Tenochtitlan, which suggests that Cortes may have refrained from having sex with her until after she was useful. I know that sounds dreadful, but, you know, he he recognised her her use during the invasion and then maybe didn't. It's a a coincidental timing that suggests he may be... um, whether consensually or not, had sex with her after the conquest. And she has a son who is named Don Martin after Cortez's father. And Cortez does seem to value this son. He really um, cares for him. We have letters in which he, he's writing after his health and so on. And sadly, Malintzin loses her son at quite an early age. He's taken by Cortez in 1528 away to Spain. And by the time uh, he comes back to Mexico, Melinson has died, so she never sees him again. But the son is really fascinating. Don Martin becomes part of the court of Isabella in Spain. And then after she dies, he becomes part of the court of Philip II. So this young mestizo, this mixed indigenous boy, is part of Spanish elite society. Really early on, we think about Europeans travelling west all the time, but we don't think about the indigenous and mestizo people going the other way. This is what my current book that I'm just finishing is about. It's out in January. It's very exciting. Um, But he is such a fascinating figure because he's living at the Spanish court. He's quite clearly recognised as an indigenous person. Ten years after Martin is born... Cortes has another son, so Martin's half-brother, who is also called Martin, which is very confusing in the records. So they start calling Martin el mestizo, the mestizo. And he, uh, Cortes then brings his other son to Spain. And the two become sort of friends at court, it seems. They do things together. They're both part of the Spanish court. And Martin fights all across Europe in Algiers and Italy for the Spanish crown. And it seems that he and his brother may even have been in Philip's entourage when he went to England to petition for the hand uh, of his his bride-to-be. And if that's true, then Martin was only the fifth indigenous person that we know of to set foot in England. Martin in his later life becomes embroiled in some conspiracies in Mexico, as a thanks to his brother, and gets exiled to Spain in the end, um, where he dies fighting against the Muslims um, in or converted Muslims, uh, fighting still for the Spanish crown. So he's clearly allied himself with the Spanish crown and with that side of his heritage. But nonetheless, he is a very successful, very prominent figure um, and a very integrated figure in Europe at that time. And, and his history is just fascinating. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She's often seen more as an emblem, as a figure for various movements or ideas than she is as a person, as someone who plays an absolutely critical role in a famous moment of history but herself gets lost in it.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So indirectly and directly, Malintzin has a very complex legacy, and you touched upon it earlier, but how is she portrayed today? That's a difficult question because it depends whose portrayal you look at. What happens is that, first of all, she is seen as sort of the mother of the mestizo nation, the mixed Mexican nation, and and that's a story that's been told about her throughout history at various times when people are trying to promote the idea of Mexico as a mixed nation. But she also became seen very much as a traitor to the indigenous peoples. The word malinchista means uh, betrayer or traitor in Mexico, in particular people who betray their culture or their nation. And the difficulty with that idea is that there is no one indigenous culture in Mexico at the time the Spanish arrive. She was enslaved by the Maya, having been a Nahua person. Does she be loyal to the Maya, who she's enslaved by, or loyal to the Nahua, who sell her into slavery, potentially? Who is she supposed to be loyal to? Is she loyal to the Tlaxcalans, who are allied with the Spanish? You know, there are so many complexities here that mean the idea of her, this young girl, as a betrayer of the nation is very, very problematic. But of course, she does ally with the Spanish and makes the best of her situation. So she's become this figure of complexity. But her history has been reclaimed in in recent years. In the 70s, the Chicana women's movement uh, started to claim her as an emblem of Hispanic indigenous femininity. Um, They saw her as someone who despite difficult circumstances, overcame. They see her as a a figure who really reclaimed her power, I suppose. And there's quite a lot of fascinating poetry written by Chicana women in the 70s and 80s. Now, she's not got one single history. Some people even associate her with La Llorona, the wailing woman in Mexico, who is a a mythological figure who loses her children and supposedly murders her children, though of course she doesn't do that in her history, but murders her children and then sometimes the husband and then is a ghost that wails in the night. But her her legacy, and this is why I wanted to talk about her and about her son, is that she's often seen more as an emblem, as a figure for various movements or ideas than she is as a person, as someone who plays an absolutely critical role in a famous moment of history but herself gets lost in it, in being simply used as a, as a in, in, in her own time, used as an intermediary, and then later used as a, a representative, a symbol of various different things. But when we try and look back, and Camilla Townsend has, has tried to do some of that in, in her book, when we look back, you can see that she's actually just a young woman who has incredible skills, actually. She's a remarkable linguist and intermediary, it seems. 
but also someone who is a very human person. And it's difficult to disentangle that from the different kinds of narratives being told about her. So to sum it all up then, why do you think Melinson deserves her 15 minutes of fame? I think Melinson deserves her 15 minutes of fame because it's important that we remember that she is a woman in her own right and she stands as an emblem for all the intermediaries, the go-betweens, the usually indigenous people who are part of this exchange, this encounter, this invasion of this violent exchange, but often get lost and forgotten and, and whose words don't appear. We remember Melintzin because she was Cortez's translator, but pretty much everybody else must have had a similar figure in this initial exchange and we don't hear about them. So she's important to remember as a woman in her own right, but also I think for me she stands as a, an emblem for these intermediaries who are so often forgotten. Caroline Dodds-Pennock, thank you very much. That was Dr Caroline Dodds-Pennock speaking to John Borkham. Caroline's a lecturer in international history at the University of Sheffield. Her upcoming book, On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe, will be released in January 2023 and is available to pre-order now. If you're enjoying this series and would like early access to more episodes to hear more historians nominating people who deserve their 15 minutes of fame, go to historyextra.com forward slash 15 hyphen minutes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. (laughs) 